As we begin our walk, let your imagination drift back to the year 1200. It's a warm morning in the Umbrian region of Italy, four days north of Rome by foot. The sun is peeking above the clouds that hover over Mount Sebastio, illuminating the bustling market square in the town of Assisi, about 700 feet above the Umbrian Valley. As we move through the gate of this walled city, step from glass and dirt onto cobblestone streets. The town is lined with reddish brownstone houses, open piazzas, and a few churches. The dusty air is rich with the smell of basil, cumin, and donkeys. Step into the busy town square where an old Roman well is the center of city life. Merchants call out their wares, musicians strum their melodies, kids chase one another laughing, and donkey carts click their way along the busy streets. A group of boisterous teenagers pass by, tossing a half-empty jug of wine between them. A girl hangs on the arm of one boy. They've been out all night. Two old priests on their way to morning prayers glare at them. One shouts at the youth, waving his hands. Shame, he calls out. You are a blot upon the good name of your families. Continue the two-mile journey along the length of Assisi, stopping to buy some bread and then leaving through the other end of town. The sounds slowly recede as we exit the walled village and descend into the Umbrian Valley below. The sun warms our faces and green groves of olive trees and rows of grapevines open before us as we pause once more to gaze upon the expanse below. What a glorious day. Now that your senses have been stirred in your imagination, let's allow for a little time to enter your present environment. God designed our mind, our soul, and our body as an integrated whole. Near the beginning of each Via Divina walk, we will lead an exercise to prepare ourselves to better meet God by becoming present to our bodies and to the stories we are about to encounter. Hello everyone, my name is Jenny Von Hall and I will be leading a couple of our reflections, our excursions into embodying the material that we'll be talking about in this week. I actually just got back about a month ago from Rome and Assisi, and I was leading a pilgrimage with my husband, Scott. So all of St. Francis' teachings and the, the scent, the beauty of Assisi is very fresh, and I am overjoyed to be able to, to linger in that a little bit more. I'm going to be asking us today to connect to our breath and to connect to our bodies, and in some ways that might be old hat. If it's new to you and something that I suggest feels uncomfortable or unnerving, please feel no obligation. So you, you can back off and find a spot in your body and in your breath that feels comfortable to you, that makes you feel safe and at home. I want this to feel restorative to you. There are many, many amazing things about who St. Francis was and, and continues to be. But at the very end of his life, one of his regrets was that he didn't treat his body very well. He had the habit of calling his body brother ass, and he would punish it. He would 
flagellate it. He would not feed it. He allowed it to suffer in ways that maybe were unnecessary. And retrospectively, he thought, you know, my body is a part of my soul and I really didn't treat it very well. So today we're going to be focusing in on that. In the midst of the day-to-day of life, in the midst of the sorrows of life, in the midst of the joys of life, we connect to our bodies. And instead of calling it an ass, a brother ass or a sister ass, we call it friend. What if we even allow our bodies, our senses, our breath to be a part of knowing God, to be a way that we allow our souls to speak? So I invite you to find a place that feels really comfortable, truly, really comfortable to you. I'm hoping that we can be seated versus laying down, but if you want to lay down, go for it. And you can pause this to find a spot, but really make sure that it's a place where the temperature's right, where your body can relax, and that you won't be interrupted. When you find that seat, notice your sit bones connected to the seat, that you're grounded in something. That's holding you. And maybe if it's comfortable for you, take a deep inhale and exhale, a deep breath in and a deep breath out. If you'd like, continue to pay attention to that breath. Feel your back nice and long, straight. Just take a moment to lift your shoulders up, roll them back and down. And again, up, back, and down. And last time, up, back, and down. If it's available to you, bring your right ear towards your shoulder just a little bit. And you just need to hang there for a moment or two. Breath helps here. And slowly bring your chin to your chest and a breath there. And then your left ear to your left shoulder. Breathe. Your chin to your chest. Maybe you keep your eyes closed, but you lift up your head. And I invite you to put your hands over your heart so they're kind of crossing over. Notice your heart beating. And ever so slowly, you're going to just start swaying side to side. So maybe the movement is initiated by the tailbone and it kind of moves to the right and the rest of the body follows, including the neck. So you're undulating the spine, almost like a beautiful piece of seaweed in the ocean being rocked side to side. And notice what you feel in your body. Where do you feel sensation? Where do you feel tension? Where do you feel peace, warmth? And as you rest in that space, ask the friend of your body, what do you want me to know? You may stay here as long as you like. I'll close with a quote by Mother Teresa. God is the friend of silence. 
See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grows in silence? See the stars, the moon, and the sun, how they move in silence? We need silence to be able to touch our souls. Peace to you. Fashion has always been a symbol of status, and Italian men have been some of the best-known fashionistas. But before there was Versace or Armani or Gucci, there was Baradoni. Francesco Baradoni was born into the home of a wealthy cloth merchant, and in the early 1200s, he was the king of fashion in his little Italian village of Assisi. Friends flocked to Francis. Not only was he a great dresser, But Francis was a party animal, generous with his father's wealth and his affection for the young ladies. He led a band of friends who caroused through the narrow streets, entranced by the traveling troubadours who sang tales of courtly love. While he partied, his mother prayed. Lady Pica desired for her son to grow into a devout and responsible man. But even with all the pleasures that wealth and privilege gave him, Francis longed for more. He dreamed of the grandeur of becoming a knight. His first shot at glory came in 1202, when the merchants of Assisi went to war with the nobility of the nearby town of Perugia. Hopped up on adrenaline and rushing to meet the enemy, the young men of Assisi were soundly defeated by the army of Perugia. Bodies were strewn about the battlefield, and Francis, dressed in all his finery, was singled out as a rich kid and taken captive in hopes of getting a ransom. Francis's family finally received word that he was alive after he had been languishing for six months in a dank, underground prison. It took another six months to negotiate his release. In captivity, Francis suffered in a way he'd never imagined. He contracted malaria and dysentery, and these diseases would plague him for the rest of his life. But the most agonizing illness that Francis suffered after his capture and imprisonment was crippling depression. Perhaps Francis wrestled with thoughts like these. My body aches. I sweat and shake in the darkness. They toss food at me like I'm a dog. I should have been killed with the rest of my friends. At least there would have been glory in it, instead of rotting in this filthy hole. Lord, do you hear me? 
take my life. Wretched walls. Wretched stone. Wretched body. Wretched soul. Why am I still here? They told me my father was going to pay ransom, but more than three months. No word. Nothing. I'm still here. God, why? Wasn't it for your honor that I rode to war? Was our cause not just? These men, they feast off our village. They take our land. They leave our youth for dead. How could you let us fail? How could you let me fail? Why did you stir my blood with the glories of war? Why should I ache to confront evil, to do something in this world only to end up here? God, where are you? Why don't you answer? In the darkness of his cell, Francis faced the darkness of his spirit. How about you? Where do you feel like you're in prison? Locked away? Forgotten? Unseen? Where do you face disappointment, discouragement, and unfulfilled desires? Perhaps you've carried a dream that is slipping away, either for your own future or even for God's goodness to come to your campus, your family, or your community. Maybe you carry with you a lament for the evil and pain you see around you. Maybe you are suffering because of evil done to you. Or maybe you can relate to the kind of pain Francis experienced, chronic illness or injury. Perhaps you've watched the people you love suffer and have felt helpless to do anything about it. Part of Francis's disillusionment and depression while in that dark cell came from his experience of brokenness in the world around him. Leprosy, wealth inequality, the irrelevance of the church. Can you identify with the challenge of trying to make it through another day in this messed up world? Climate crisis, political division, hatred, war, economic injustice, oppression, a pandemic, and a church that seems out of touch with the world's pain. How does anyone find or hold on to joy in such suffering?
At the age of 22, Francis returned to Assisi, a shadow of the man that went into battle a year earlier. His mirth for partying and carousing had been swallowed up in the adversity he had endured. Then, in 1205, a nobleman passed through Assisi on his way to join the Fourth Crusade. Was this the chance for fame and glory? Excitement stirred in his spirit as his father outfitted him with the best armor and the finest horse money could buy. The next day, his family and friends gathered to wish him well. I know that I will become a great prince, he told them, beaming with pride. But a day's journey from Assisi, Francis was overcome with malarial fever and extreme nausea. He and his companion had to stop. In his delirium, Francis heard a voice asking where he was going. Francis replied that he intended to become a knight in the crusade. Why are you abandoning the master for the servant, the voice said. Go back to Assisi. Francis turned home. And while he may not have been aware of it at the moment, he was beginning to obey the voice of God. The shame of his defeat was even greater than being taken as a prisoner of war. Sickness, failure, and unfulfilled desire wrapped around Francis like a dark cloak. During this period of depression and deep questioning, two profound encounters transformed Francis. The first was an encounter with a leper. Lepers were repulsive to Francis, like they were to most of the medieval world. Their festering sores and rotting flesh made the sight and smell of them unbearable. But meeting a leper on the road one day, Francis was overcome with a mystical, joyous love. Let's catch up with Francis in an imagined scene from that day. I walked the stone streets of Assisi, lost in familiarity. God, what are you calling me to do? I, I tried to rekindle joy as I imagined myself leading friends down that alley, up that hill, around that corner. The more I tried to rekindle the laughter, the hollower it sounded, the further away. I left the stone streets of the town and wandered the paths below Assisi, wandering, praying, searching for God, for direction. And then I heard the warning bells draped around the leper before I saw him. There was a knot in my stomach at that sound. I wanted to turn my horse around, but I just couldn't do it. I look at the man before me, wrapped in rags. The stench of his rotting flesh makes me squint. I want a wretch. He keeps his eyes fixed to the ground. I too look at the ground and am compelled to get closer. God, is this you? What do you want from me? I walk closer. Perhaps, yes, some money. But when I touch his hand, 
There is dignity in it. And before I know what I'm doing, I kiss his hand. I look and see a man in all the filth and stench. I'm transfixed, changed. When I look again, the leper is gone. And I'm overcome with joy. When I embraced this leper, it was Christ who was embracing me. The second encounter that transformed Francis occurred during another excursion on the paths below Assisi. For months, he had been crying out to God, seeking forgiveness, and asking what he was to do now that he had returned home in shame. If not to be a knight, then what? One day, Francis was coming back from an errand and sought rest inside the dilapidated church of San Damiano. Like the leper on the road, San Damiano was in a state of decay and neglect. As Francis sat and prayed before the cross that hung above the altar, the crucified Christ spoke to him in a voice he described as tender and kind. Francis, Jesus said, don't you see that my house is being destroyed? Go then and rebuild it. At that moment, Francis received a new sense of purpose, a calling. Though he didn't understand exactly what it meant to rebuild the church, Francis was eager to respond to Jesus. Psalm 16:11 says, "In your presence there is fullness of joy." According to Brother Thomas of Salano, Francis's encounter with the leper brought about indescribable joy. It was the joy of finding Christ in the disguise of the marginalized, and the joy of being called by Jesus to rebuild his broken church. After his conversion, Francis's joy, love for Jesus, and desire to live out a gospel life were so compelling that others started following him. They were known for their love of singing, physical labor, solitude, prayer, and service to the sick and marginalized. Somehow, they had uncovered the secret of experiencing joy in a world of sorrow. How can you relate to Francis at this point in the story?
As we continue on our walk, let's try a breath prayer where we breathe and walk in rhythm to a psalm, one of the sacred songs from the Hebrew scriptures. Praying the psalms has long been an important tradition in the church. We will practice this together on each of our walks along the Via Divina. Psalm 16 says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The psalm speaks of single-minded devotion, provision, joy, and security to be found in the Lord. I invite you to become present to your breath as we pray a silent breath prayer for the next few minutes. Inhale. Exhale. And as you inhale, pray in your presence. As you exhale, there is joy. Try it out as you walk. In your presence, there is joy. In your presence, there is joy. You may want to adjust your pace so that it syncs with the prayer. It can be difficult to align both your breathing and your pace, and it's okay to focus on one or the other. In your presence, there is joy. In your presence, there is joy. If you find it challenging to say this prayer on the inhale and exhale of your breath, you may modify it to simply sync with your steps in a pattern and rhythm that feels right to you. Continue on your own for a few minutes as the music plays. Now let's hear from Sheremy Hinders, a pilgrim to Assisi who had her own transformative experience in front of the San Damiano Cross. In 2018, I joined InterVarsity's Journey Italy. On one of the last days in Assisi, we went to the Basilica of St. Clair, a church where the San Damiano Cross had been moved since it first hung in the little chapel where God spoke to Francis all those years ago. We gathered in the sanctuary, spread out, and sat on the wooden pews. We were invited to spend the next 45 minutes engaging in Visio Divina prayer. 
Visio Divina means divine seeing. It's a way of praying with an image as we ask God to speak to us through the artistry of the piece. That day's image was the cross God had used to call Francis. As I began to silently look at the cross, the recollection of Michelangelo's Pietà came to mind. It's the sculpture of Mary holding the limp body of Jesus. We had seen the Pietà in Rome just a few days before, and suddenly in my mind's eye, I was inserted into that scene. I was the woman, and I was holding Jesus, bloody, lifeless Jesus whose body had just been taken down from the cross. I rocked him and wept amidst the chaos after the crucifixion. Even to this day, as I recall the image, I can feel a kind of grief in a visceral way. The next thing I knew, God seemed to transport me in my mind's eye to a portico. I was there alone with Jesus' body lying on a table. And I began to take care of him, to wash away the dried blood and dirt and sweat, preparing him for his resting place. The scene was quiet and unbelievably peaceful and beautiful. The wind and sunshine gently came through the open air. I experienced a cocktail of both joy and sorrow like I'd never known. And yet the depth of sorrow was suspended as I busied myself with my task. I'd never felt so much honor in loving another. And then I took notice of the deep gash in Jesus' side from the soldier's spear. I knew he was already gone and that closing the wound didn't make much sense. But I could not bear that this gash remained open. I wanted to express my love for this man somehow. So I cleaned the stab wound as best I could. And then I began to stitch up his side. I've never stitched up a human cut before. I didn't really know how, but there I was wanting to honor Jesus' dignity and thinking the best way I could do that was to stitch his opened wound shut. One little stitch at a time, no one else there, not a sound to be heard outside my own breathing and the use of the simple tools around me, touching, caring for Jesus' body with as much dignity as I knew how to offer him. It was the most intimate prayer experience of my life. Yet I knew that as I cleaned Jesus' body and prepared it for burial, the intimacy of proximity would grow more distant. Finally, I saw myself carrying Jesus and laying him gently into a stone tomb and closing the entrance. My task was finished, and then a complete grief and utter loneliness overtook me. I sat in this sorrow until our leader gently invited us back into the present moment and space in the chapel. I opened my eyes and there I was again with a San Damiano cross. I was moved by the intimacy of the prayer, wondering at what it might mean. Weeks later, I was back in Boston after the Assisi pilgrimage, and I went to the North End, Boston's Little Italy. I ordered a coffee, and I sat at a little table in the coffee shop with my journal and pen. 
As I wrote and prayed, suddenly I was back in the scene, in my mind's eye, at the place where I'd laid Jesus' body. But the entrance to the tomb was no longer closed. And I realized it was Sunday, the Sunday after Jesus died, and it was dawn. The sun was beginning to come up. And then I saw him. With the rising sun behind him, Jesus came walking toward me, and with him rushed a flood of warm, quietly joyful golden light, enveloping myself and the entire scene. It was kind of like a movie, but it was more personal and more magical and somehow so real. And Jesus was fully alive, so healthy and full of color and smiling. When he came to me, we hugged, and then he lingered. He was so close to me, breathing the same air. And then he stepped back just enough to lift the side of his shirt. And I saw it, where the spear had caused the gash was a healed scar, remnants of the stitching perceptible. And Jesus looked at the stitched scar, and then he looked at me. And he said with a kind of breathless amazement, you did this for me. You stitched my side. No one has ever done this for me. Jesus wanted me to know what it meant to him. As this experience of Jesus on dawn of Resurrection Sunday unfolded in my mind, my body in that coffee shop in Boston couldn't contain the emotion any longer. The feelings that began in that little chapel in Assisi in front of the San Damiano cross that had spoken to Francis and now to me, that feeling returned and I began silently crying at my little table, hoping no one would see me, but unable to stop. I encountered God in Assisi and then at my life at home, the joy and the suffering of Christ and it's remained with me to this day. centuries before Francis, the disciples of Jesus had their own experience with deep disillusionment. The week had started triumphant, with their teacher Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds cheering him on. Hosanna! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds cried as people lay down their coats for him to ride across. The disciples witnessed Jesus being praised as King and Messiah. But in just a few days, everything changed. Let's imagine listening to one of the disciples recount this experience in the upper room the night before he was crucified. I had thought that finally Jesus would take up the role of hero, of conqueror, and a new kingdom would topple the Roman Empire that had been ruling and oppressing our people for decades. We were ready to take up our weapons and fight. Yet in the days following this impromptu parade, we heard a very different message from Jesus. During the Passover meal later that week, we reclined at the table filled with the bread, 
wine, herbs, and other food of this special meal. We were waiting for Jesus to explain more about his plans. At one point, Jesus held up the bread and wine, symbols of the time in history that our people had escaped from Egypt, another empire. He said that the bread was his body and the wine his blood. Things were getting strange. Then Jesus talked about leaving us and going to a place we couldn't follow, but he would send a helper for us. He even said that one of us would betray him. Then he repeated something he had told us before. He would die. He said that we would be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and that we would be hated by all nations because of him. What? These were not the words of a hero. I was confused and disappointed. So were the others. This was not what we had signed up for. We could barely look at one another. We left everything to follow Jesus. We were impressed by his teaching, his authority. Matthew left his tax collection booth. James, John, and I left our fishing careers. Others came because he healed and cast out demons. People from all over Judea and from all walks of life were following him. The ministry was growing, yet it seemed that these three years of ministry would end in disgrace. As Jesus kept talking and looking at each of us with such love and care, his words broke through our sorrow. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. At that time, we didn't know what these words could mean. But four days later, after we had seen him crucified by Roman soldiers and laid in a stone-cold tomb, we saw Jesus again. He had risen, just as he promised. We touched him. We ate with him. He was alive, and our hearts burned with joy within us. Given all the suffering we have been through in sharing about Jesus, you would think this joy would have disappeared. But we have seen God in the flesh, and his joy has not left us. Could this be the new kingdom Jesus was talking about?
I invite you to slow down your pace again, or even take a break to do this next prayer exercise. All these embodied exercises are invitations. If at any time they feel too intense for you, feel free to pause and move your audio guide forward. Begin by becoming aware of your connection to the earth, whether you're walking or standing or sitting. Notice the places where you are being supported by the earth. Feel your gravity and how the earth holds you up. Relax into a state of openness. Sense inside yourself a stillness, like deep, clear water. Breathe normally. Observe your breathing. It's happening by itself. It's like you aren't doing it. You are being breathed by life. Like everyone else on the Franciscan Way, everyone on the planet, we are all being breathed together by life. Feel your connection to the larger web of life on the earth. Breathe in through the heart and out. As you breathe, feel the armor around your heart dissolve. It becomes awake and tender. As you breathe, become aware of your heart's connection to the source, to love, to God. Keep breathing through your heart while I talk. Francis was taken by the story of Jesus coming to the earth. In the Incarnation, he saw God's immense love for the world, so much so that he entered a world of pain and suffering. He experienced the whole range of human emotion and brought love, compassion, and healing. Let that love inspire you as it inspired Francis. As you breathe in, imagine the air as heavy thick, hot, smoky. You control how much of this heavy, thick air you want to let in. Take care not to let it overwhelm you. Let the air flow through you. Breathe in heavy, thick, hot air. And as you breathe out, imagine it as bright, light, clear, fresh. Do nothing but let it pass through your heart, like a forest of trees cleaning the air or soil cleaning water. And know that you are not alone in this. There are many others who are doing this with you. Settle into a rhythm Keep breathing like this as I walk you through steps. Hot, thick air enters, passes through your heart, and cool, clean, fresh air flows out. Breathing in, you're letting yourself be touched by this world. 
These are things that we often don't want to touch or to feel. Consider pain and suffering in your life. Consider pain and suffering in the people that you care for. Consider the pain and suffering of people in this world. War, hunger, injustice, our suffering planet. Our grief for these things can show up in many ways, in anxiety, anger, sadness. However it feels to you right now, whether in emotion or sensation, I invite you to let it be but from enough distance that it won't wash you away. When you have a good hold of your feeling, acknowledge it with respect. It's a completely loving and beautiful response to the losses that we face. It means that you come from a place of deep compassion for this world. Take however long you need to honor your feelings with compassion. As you open your heart to all of life, you may feel discomfort. Try to keep your heart open. Breathe in. Let it pass through your heart and breathe out healing and love. Take the difficulty and make some kind of compost out of our grief. The poet Rainier Rilke says, Let all sorrows ripen in me. We help them ripen by passing them through our hearts. As we finish up, feel your unguarded, unarmored heart that can transform difficulty into relief, that can hold sorrow and joy together, through which flows the love of Christ. Feel that nothing is stuck. Feel the power and beauty in that. As we leave Francis at this point in the journey and return to our own, let's walk a while and embrace the mystery of holding joy and suffering together. You are walking and God's presence is walking next to you. The joy of being in God's presence is not diminished by the reality of difficulty, nor should the suffering be painted over with glib platitudes. We can hold both without it breaking us. Hear now the words Francis prayed before the crucifix at San Damiano. As you feel led, 
Make this prayer your own in the place where you feel like you are holding suffering and joy in your life. Most high, glorious God, enlighten the darkness of my heart and give me true faith, certain hope, and perfect charity, sense, and knowledge, Lord, that I might carry out your holy and true commandments.